There are three sorts of lies, it said. And there, there are lies, and there are damn lies, and statistics. Well, I don't have any statistics for you this morning, but we're going to focus on the sin of Israel, uh, which here we see is deceit, is lying. So far in the book of Hosea, really the, the emphasis has been on Israel's idolatry, the way that they've sought after other gods, they've chased after them like lovers. But this morning, the focus of our passage is on their integrity. As we scratch the surface, we'll see other things as well. But it's worth pausing before we dig into the passage, before we start thinking about it in depth. As we see Israel's lies, it's worth us thinking about ourselves. If we're going to be pointing the finger at Israel, we need to see how we're doing in that area as well. How are we doing with our integrity? If you remember, in this passage, God is speaking to his people. So he cares about how they live. How are we doing with our honesty? When we say we're going to do something, do we do it? When we say we're going to pray for someone, do we do it? When someone's asked us to do a question about our life or our, our spiritual state, do we exaggerate? Or do we embellish? As we look at Israel this morning, we mustn't, mustn't, mustn't think, oh, I wish so-and-so was here. This is directed at us. We need to hear this. Now, there aren't clear, neat sections in our passage this morning, so we're going to look under it under three headings. Israel's founder, Israel's failure, and Israel's future. First of all, Israel's founder, Jacob the liar. Have a look with me again at verses 12, uh, chapter 12, verses 2 uh, to verse 6. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favour. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. His point here really is that Israel, Jacob, has always been the same. Jacob was the national founder of Israel. His other name, Israel, is exactly where they got their name from. And national figures often seem to reflect the character of the nation, don't they? So Rome was supposedly founded by Romulus and Remus, the wolf children, vicious like a wolf. You find this idea in the Bible as well. So if you look on the back of your notice sheets, you'll see there Genesis 10, uh, 8 to 11. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on the earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh. So can you see that this character, Nimrod, he's the sort of founding father of Babel, of Assyria, these warrior nations. And he's a hunter, it sort of fits with how the nations turn out. So who was Israel founded by? Well, Israel was founded by a liar. We get told this story here. When he was this is the story of uh, Israel. Um, we get told this story here. When he was in the womb, he grasped his brother's heel. Now that seems a bit of a strange phrase, it's quite literal, that's what he did as he was coming out. But it's also a turn of phrase. Uh, an idiom, if you like, in, in Hebrew and in English as well. 
To grasp someone's heel was to deceive them, was to lie to them. We have a phrase that's quite similar to it in English, to, to pull someone's leg. You ever thought, what does that mean, deceive someone? But it does, that's, that's how we understand it as well. He was somebody who pulled people's legs, if you like. But the Hebrew seems a bit more serious. We, we've got the idea of sort of joking. But here it's more serious. It's the idea of lying, deceiving. And we see it in Jacob's life, don't we? As he tricks his brother for his birthright and deceives his father for his blessing. Jacob, Israel, has always been a deceiver. That's what's characterised his life. But the original Jacob grew up. He strove with God in his adult life. That's what we see there in verse 4. Now, sometimes in the Bible we read it positively, and sometimes we read it negatively, as though he's fighting with God. But it's positive here. We're reminded of the time wrestling with the angel of the Lord to obtain a blessing. And he obtained it with many tears. Perhaps the pain of having his hip put out of joints, as he does as he wrestles. He met with God at Bethel. Now there's a sting of irony and rebuke here. As we see in Hosea, Bethel is this idolatrous place where people go to worship the golden calf. But Jacob met God at Bethel. Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. What do they do? Well, they go to Bethel to meet Baal. So, Jacob grew up, didn't he, into something better. He goes to meet the true God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And there's just a little comment to the reader there in verse 6. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your Lord. It's like God can't help but interject into the story. Return, Israel. Look what your father did. He met with me at Bethel. I'll help you return. Just come to me. But we already know from what we read at the beginning and what we read last week, that the more that God calls, the more they turn away. Even though, actually, they've been treated better than the original Jacob. Have a look at chapter 12, verses 12 to 14. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel out of Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim was given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him, and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. He's saying, actually, look, when you look back to your founding father, when you look back to Jacob, actually, he had it easier than you did. Sorry, he had it harder. You've got it easier than he did. The original Jacob had to flee to a foreign land. He had to work for a spouse, and he had to keep sheep. Those are the three things he had to do. Go to a foreign land, work for a spouse, and keep sheep. And then verse 13 reverses those ideas to Israel. Israel was brought from a foreign land, Egypt, and was kept by God. The same word that is used of Israel keeping sheep. The implication there too is that they didn't have to work for a spouse, if you like. We've seen all the way through that God is their spouse. God is their husband. So they're worse than Jacob, but actually they've had it easier than Jacob. And yet they treated God much worse. They provoked God, and God is saying he won't leave them unpunished. 
You see, Israel's failure, really, <coughs> was being like Jacob and not being like Jacob. That was Israel's failure. They're like Jacob in their deceit. Have a look at chapter 11, verse 12 to 12, verse 1. Ephraim surrounded me with lies, and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria and oil is carried to Egypt. Ephraim surrounded God with lies. The picture there was almost like a siege. They besiege me with lies. I'm surrounded by them. I'm swimming in them. And it's not necessarily lies to God, but deceitful lies, deceitful practices with each other. The example that he gives is their politics. You see, they make a treaty with Assyria, on the one hand, and then they send gifts to Egypt, on the other hand. It's like they're trying to court both at the same time. You can see it in 2 Kings 17, if you look uh, later on in the day. They sort of hedge their bets, hoping that no one will find out. Now you might want to say, well, that's politics, isn't it? That's how it works. That's what you do in politics. You sort of try and get the best people to sort it out. But how often do we do that in our own lives? Segment off areas of our lives where the rules don't apply. I was just trying to think of some examples and the week put out white lines. Well, you know, if I told them the truth, it would hurt them. But often it's saving face, isn't it? Often it's us who don't want to uh, get in that awkward situation of telling the truth. What about CVs? That's an area where people can exaggerate and embellish. I don't know if you've ever watched The Apprentice. Every year they write these CVs that look amazing, that look astounding. And actually, when they start to scratch the surface, they find out that they've made half of it up. I don't know why they do it every year. They, you know, think that they watch The Apprentice. And find out that this is what they do. They're going to find out at some point. But there are areas where we might, you know, think, well, that's business, that's work, that that doesn't really apply. Or what about government forms? I've been filling in my self-assessment this week. And, uh, you know, do I really need to put everything down? I had a friend at a church, not this one, uh, another church years and years ago, who uh, he was signing on for the dole for benefits. Uh, and uh, we're sort of chatting through the form and uh, he said, oh well, uh, does this box here, I haven't put anything in here, have got loads of savings, but my uncle told me if I put it in, it won't give me as much money. They sort of didn't seem to think that that would somehow apply, that telling the truth on a form actually is important too. We can segment different parts of our, our lives and say, well, they don't apply that. And that's just a few examples, isn't it? Very few of us are faced with the sort of problem, like, like call it the Anne Frank problem, you know, where if you don't tell the truth, somebody will die. But many of us act like those things happen every day. It doesn't really apply because of this. But actually, there's some lies, aren't there? And we're being like Jacob. Israel were being like Jacob. And we see as well that they have business lies. So, uh, verse 7 to 9 of chapter 12. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labours, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. 
I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents, as in the day of the appointed feasts. You see, they were thinking, oh yeah, well, this line thing doesn't really apply to business. But actually what they're doing is they're fiddling each other. It's the old world equivalent of buying a kilogram bag of sugar from Sainsbury's or Tesco's and getting it home and finding that it's only 80 grams rather than a kilo or 800 grams. Or it's what the Christmas have been doing for years. I don't know if they do this in, in other countries, you know. They reduce the number of crisps in the packet, but they keep the size of the packet the same. Or increase, or increase the size of the packet. Incre- yeah, increase the size of the packet. And they say, oh, well, they need space to breathe, or, or something like that. They come up with all sorts of different things. But it's the same idea. It's sort of cheating you out of your crisps, or cheating you out of your sugar. <coughs> That's what's happening in Israel. They're cheating each other out of their things. Now, those are sort of silly examples, aren't they? But what if that was your food for the week? What if that was the food for your family? What if you couldn't feed everybody because the shop missold you your food? What if your employer gave you less than you promised? For those on the poverty line, it could be the difference between life and death. But Israel is proud of it. They're arrogant about it, verse 8. Look how clever I am. I've made myself rich. They'll never catch me. It's mansions, hot tubs and swimming pools all the way for me. But God says, no. I'm going to put you back in tents. This isn't going to be going glamping. This isn't. This is more like a rainy day in a field somewhere, except it's a very hot desert. You see, they had this festival called the Festival of Booths, where they had to sort of build up huts to remind themselves of the time that they lived in the wilderness. And God says, "Right, this is going to be it all the time now. You're going to go back to that because of your lives. You're going back to Egypt. You're going back to the tents." But it's not just lies, though. There is lots of lies. They've surrounded him with lies. But there are other things as well. Have a look at verse, um, chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, that he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more, and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifice, kiss calves. You see, Ephraim is a seemingly started well, Ephraim was another name from the northern kingdom, but it was sort of a, a tribe within it, a bit like the way sometimes people mix up England and the United Kingdom. Ephraim was the biggest tribe, really, in the, the midst of them. And he started well. He had respect amongst the other tribes. But Baal, the false god, has brought him down with a crash. It's so bad, in fact, that in verse 1, Hosea can refer to them as dead. It's as though Baal has killed them off. So this is going to take more than Israel just pulling their socks up. This is going to take more than them just trying hard. (laughs) They're going to need a national resurrection. Yet, even in this dead state, he carries on singing. More statues, more idols, metal statues, silver statues. Their hard-earned cash goes into producing idols. Israel has got to become a huge idol factory. Doesn't that remind you a bit of our own state? Again, on the back of your notice sheet, you'll see there there's Ephesians 2, verses 1 uh, to 3. And you were dead in the trans- trespasses and sins 
in which he once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see there he's talking about people as dead, but still sinning. Dead in their sins, but still being led into sin. Following idols. John Calvin said that a human heart is an idol factory. We don't need a nation to produce idols, we've got our own hearts to do it. So Israel are are doing lies, they're doing idolatry, but they're also practising child sacrifice. Do you see that at the end of chapter 13, verse 2? It's said of them, those who offer human sacrifice kiss calves. Now the calves are the idols that they got in Bethel and Dan. And they're sacrificing their children to appease the Baals. We read it in 2 Kings 17, 17. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings, and used divinations and omens, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord provoking him to anger. We can see from the history books of the Bible, actually, this is what they were doing. And this may seem a million miles away from our culture, but is it? Children in our society are often seen as inconvenient and not a blessing. Children, biblically speaking, are a blessing, a wonderful gift that God chooses to bestow Anyone who's experienced the terrible pain of miscarriage is all too aware of this. But there are other people who uh, view that that too. But on a whole, children are viewed as sort of getting in the way of life rather than being part of it as a society as a whole. If children would get in the way of our employment or our enjoyment of life, then either we don't have them or we get rid of them before they're born. (coughs) Tragic but true. Abortion is sometimes a complicated moral decision, but often it's not. Often it's a decision of convenience. It would make our lives too hard. Is that any different, really, from the people of Hosea's day? They wanted better crops from the bars. They wanted more food, a better lifestyle, so they sacrificed their children in the fire. I think we as a society, we've ditched the pagan superstition, but we've kept the pagan motivation. We want our life to be easy, so we think, right, no children, or get rid of children. But these are supposed to be the people of God. These are supposed to be the people representing God on earth, and they're sacrificing their own children. So what will God do? Well, we see that in our last heading. Israel's future. Destruction. (laughs) Comparison to several things in this section. The first thing... It's things that blow away. Things that blow away. Have a look at chapter 13, verses 3 to 6. Therefore they shall be like the morning mist, or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the flashing floor, or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and beside me there is no saviour. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their heart was lifted up. Therefore, they forgot me. You get those several images there of things that blow away. You get the morning mist. 
We've talked about that before, haven't we? If you look across at the Wharf Valley on the morning, you see the mist there in the morning, but by an hour's time, or even ten minutes' time sometimes, it's gone. The dew in the morning, you know, you see it on the grass, those little bits of water, but then again, it's gone. Now, if you remember, those two images were used to be sort of love for God in an earlier chapter. The idea that their love was fleeting and just disappeared. Well, now this is there. They're going to be fleeting and disappear. He talks about this chaff. That's something that was made when you fresh wheat on the floor. It's like dust that would blow away in the wind. They're like smoke from a window. I don't know if you've ever burnt your toast at home, you know, stuff the fire alarm, just that little sort of roof of smoke. Some of them seem really sensitive, don't they? They say it's like the smoke sort of going out the window and just, just seems to disappear, doesn't it? Going off into the atmosphere. Here today, gone tomorrow. But now he's saying that's Israel. You are that. You are here today, gone tomorrow. Why? Well, each of these little sections has its own reasons. It's because they've forgotten God. God brought them out of Egypt. He's given them all that they have. He was with them in the tough times. But actually, it's when things started to look up, when things started to go well, that they forgot him. Don't you find that so often our problem? Actually, we're not really tempted to forget God when things are tough. That's the time we turn to him. It's when things are going well, when he's blessed us. But actually, we're most in danger of turning away from him. And that's exactly what happened to Israel. When it was tough, they sort of stuck near God. But when it was going well, they turned away from him. So God says, I'm going to blow you away like dust. But not only are they going to be blown away, and things that are blown away, they're also the prey now. The prey. Have a look at 7 to 9, chapter 13. So I am, a, like, I am to them like a lion. Like a leopard, I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of their cubs. I will tear open their breasts. And I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. He's saying right now, God is going to come at you like a lion, like a leopard, like a bear that's had its cubs taken, like a wild beast. I think we basically get those images, don't we? But why is he going to do that? Well, because they're against their helper. They're against the very person who is helping them. They say, don't they, never by the hand that feeds you. Well, actually, we've seen in Hosea, in our last chapter, and we read it at the beginning, that not only was he feeding them, he'd rescued them from slavery. He'd held them in his arms. He'd taught them to walk. He'd sustained them like a father or a mother. But instead of thanking him, they turned their back on him. In fact, they're now working against him. It's classic treachery, isn't it? It's Brutus. It's Judas. This whole nation is like Judas. So God will make him his prey. So they are things that blow away. They're the prey, but they're also an unwise son. Have a look at 13, 10 to 14. Now where is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those of whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. 
his sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth came come for him, but he is an unwise son. For at the time, at right time, he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O death, where are your plagues? O Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Here there are pictures of an unwise son. A son between life and death, if you like. When the time comes, they're in the womb. The, the pains start coming, the contractions start. But they don't bother going, they don't move. They just stay there. And if they stay there, then they're going to die. That's the implication, really, of what comes next in verse 14, when he talks about ransoming them from death. <coughs> it seems, in some ways, they've got this conflicted. What's he going to do? And there are those rhetorical questions, aren't they? Shall I redeem you from death? Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, shield, where is your sin? <laughs> is it that God's conflicted, though? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? The conclusion is negative. At the end of verse 14, compassion is hidden from my eyes. This leads you to read it this way. If it's negative, it's sort of saying, shall I redeem you from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem you from death? Oh, death, where have you hidden your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where have you hidden your sin? It's as though actually God is saying, bring it on. He's saying, judge, come on death, get on with it. It's actually a statement of judgment on them. Why? Well, because they wanted another king. They didn't want God as their rightful king. Back in the day, when Israel was younger, they wanted a king to fight the battles for them. And as if God saying, well, where are your kings now? Let's see if they do you any good. I gave you a king in the end because I was angry with you. I'm taking him away for the same reason. And more, I'll bring death and its plagues upon you. Because you are an unwise son. You haven't done as I've told you to do. You've rebelled against me. So they are an unwise son. And then finally, they are a dry fountain. Have a look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 13. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall be dried up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt, because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open. The picture here is the desert wind coming and drying them up. A wind so devastating that it's not by accident. It's the wind of the Lord. Incidentally, that phrase is the same as the Spirit of the Lord. God himself is doing this through the Assyrians. All that is precious to them will be taken away. And they will be treated as Assyria treated other nations. They are defeated. Children and babies killed. Pregnant women ripped open. These were stark realities of war in those days. No babies, so there's no new soldiers to fight back. No children to avenge their parents. It was a way of stopping any resistance, any comeback. But it's utterly horrific, isn't it? What was going to happen to them? Why will this happen? Well, because they have rebelled. 
They're bearing their own guilt. You see, we sometimes think of sins as small things, don't we? We think of them as sort of trifles that just, well, are a bit annoying to God, but really it doesn't matter. Actually, the ones we normally think about like that are our own sins, aren't they? Other people's sins, they're the serious ones. But no, all sin is horrific and deserves the highest penalty. So if you're here this morning and you haven't repented, if you haven't turned from your sin and put your trust in the Lord Jesus, then actually you face the highest penalty. That's because sin is so bad. Look at what it did to these people. Look at what it brought about. So I don't say that to condemn you or annoy you, but genuinely to warn you. Israel didn't heed the warning. This is what happened to them. And this is but a glimpse of what we see for our future judgment. This is nothing compared to the realities of hell. But is it all doom and gloom? Is it just saying that we're doomed and that's it? Well, not the way the New Testament takes this passage, no. Paul picks this passage up and combines it with one from Isaiah 25, verse 8. And it gives those rhetorical questions we saw quite a different emphasis. If you see on the back of your sheets, there's 1 Corinthians 15, 54 to 56. And this is speaking of the resurrection that's to come to all believers. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, what was a statement of judgment in the Old Testament is used here to be a statement of victory in new life in the New Testament. It's as though Paul is saying, well, where is your victory now, death? Where is your sting? We've been given victory over death by Jesus' resurrection. Because he was raised, we'll be raised. (coughs) We spoke about it last week, didn't we? We've been united with Jesus through faith by the Holy Spirit. So judgment is not the final word. Victory over judgment is the final word. But it wasn't us that won it. We didn't win the victory. It was won for us. It was Jesus, our Saviour. He took the curse of death. He took the sting of death for us. So that we could enjoy eternal life with him. Now that doesn't give us an excuse to sin. But it does mean that when we lie... When we don't do what we say we will, when our personal integrity falls short of what it should, after repentance in our life, there is a word of grace. Christ has won the victory over the sting of death, which is sin. Christ has freed us to live new lives for him. Lives of truthfulness, lives of integrity, lives of honesty. But when we fail, he can say, no death, you can't have them. They're mine. I will raise them on the last day, and I will lose none of them. You see, when a believer dies in the New Testament, it's not even called death. You know that? Of course, it's sleep. Death has truly lost its sting in Christ. He's given us the victory over death and sin. So that we must face the realities of this passage that we fail, but in Jesus, we can be victorious. We can know that our resurrection is coming on the last day, and death really has lost its sting. 
So let's pray that God would reassure us with these things. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that the Lord Jesus died on the cross to take the penalty and the sting of death. Father, thank you that when we fail, when we do lie, when we act like Israel and are faithless towards you, Father, you are faithful to us. So, Father, we pray that you would encourage us with these thoughts. Father, help us to live lives that are renewed, that are lives of integrity, lives of honesty, lives of truthfulness, that keep us looking to you as we walk with you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.